From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. In November 1966, Walt Disney checked himself into St. Joseph Hospital for persistent pain attributed to an old polo injury. The hospital was across the street from the studio on land Walt and Roy had donated to the Sisters of Providence for the hospital. Walt was diagnosed with lung cancer, and after surgery to remove his lung, he passed away a few weeks later. In this episode from the archives of our Disneyland show, we take a look at how Walt's passing affected Disneyland and the projects already in the planning and construction stages. Well, the end of the 1960s marked the end of Walt's Disneyland. Um, The park would become even more dependent on consensus by a group of talented individuals who had worked with Walt Disney. Some would be paralyzed by trying to guess what would Walt do, and others would flourish in their new freedom. So as the 70s began, the focus of Walt Disney Productions and WED was primarily on Walt Disney World. The resort was scheduled to open in Lake Buena Vista, Florida in the fall of 1971. Included in the project is a Disneyland East, which was to be named the Magic Kingdom. Although Disneyland was no longer the center of attention for the Disneyland company, it was in no way neglected, as is popularly believed. Um, the 1970s saw several shops close on Main Street and replaced with new ones that continued to be popular with collectors today. The major refurbishments of three e-ticket attractions, the launch of two Disneyland parades, which still rank as amongst the favorites, of longtime Disneyland fans, the construction of several new attractions, and the addition of a whole new land. In 1970, Disneyland surpassed its annual attendance record on September 19th, when 10 million guests had already visited the park in that year. 1970, it was a turbulent time, and it was the height of the Yippie Youth International Party Movement. The student activist movement had started in Berkeley, California in 1964, fed by discontent over the Vietnam War. It evolved into a revolutionary movement. The Yippies were anti-authority anarchists who staged dramatic events to get the attention of the media. No other institution more idealistically represented the United States of America than Disneyland. Radical student newspapers began to print stories that Disneyland was a target to be invaded. 
The 25th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima was selected to symbolize the bombing raids being carried out by the United States in Southeast Asia. When Disneyland executives heard about the Yippies' plans, they contacted the Anaheim Police Department and the Orange County Sheriff's Department, who had also heard the rumors. The Yippies wanted to make a statement by taking over Disneyland and uncovering the corporate lies and myths that existed within this image of capitalism. Jack Lindquist, director of marketing, called a meeting with Disney's executive vice president and CEO, Card Walker, director of park operations, Dick Nunes, and Disneyland publicist, Eddie Meck, and said, we need to have a plan. Jack Lindquist recalled that event. We called the Times, the Examiner, all of Southern California community papers, and the local radio and TV stations. Card made the presentation and told the media, don't respond to rumors. Don't fuel this. If anything happens that is factual, and you know it's happening, fine, but don't spread rumors. On August 6th, we'll have a media headquarters set up at the park. For your reporters and cameramen, if anything happens, we will be in radio contact with law enforcement. The minute anything occurs, we'll let you know, but we don't want you out there before that with your cameras. To everyone's amazement, the media complied, with the exception of a Fullerton newspaper, that broke the story by reporting Disneyland anticipated a problem in two days. On the morning of August 6th, approximately 400 police units gathered backstage at Disneyland. As August 6th drew closer, law enforcement saw that student activists were starting to gather in the Orange County area. If someone was driving a VW bus, the police pulled them over and told them to go away. Um, another staging area was across the street at the Disneyland Hotel and another at the Anaheim Convention Center. The El Toro Marine Air Station near Irvine, California, provided a company of Marines. If necessary, additional Marines were on standby to fly in by helicopter if necessary. Jack Lindquist said, We were an armed camp and a potential battle zone. Disneyland officials considered closing the park when Roy Disney suggested to Dick Nunes that the park be shut down for the day. Nunes objected. What about tomorrow or the next day or the next? What about the people who've planned their vacations around us? Sooner or later, we're going to have to face up to this. Disneyland stayed open. Said Jack Lindquist, that morning the media showed up. We had everything, including desks phones, coffee, and sweet rolls set up for them in the administration building. The morning passed quietly, but we knew some yippies were trickling into the park. About 75 long-haired youth turned away at the gates for violating the park standards for admittance, including intoxication, possession of marijuana, lack of shoes and shirts, and possessions of banners which were not allowed in a park. Some 300 others were allowed to purchase tickets and enter the park. Disneyland cast members, supervisors, and security, backed up by Orange County riot police who remained close but out of sight, implored the youth to enjoy themselves whilst respecting the other guests in the park.
but it was all for naught. As it soon became obvious, their mission was to create another dramatic event, which in past events usually ended in full-scale rioting. Jack Lindquist remembered, close to noon, a small confrontation occurred outside the main gate, and we notified the press who ran out there. That interaction did a lot of good with the media because they knew we were being honest. We told them that if there was a problem, they would know as soon as we did. The group at the main gate was turned away because they had banners. In the afternoon, a group of approximately 150 youth invaded and took over the fort on Tom Sawyer Island, lowered the flag of the United States and raised their own flag, a marijuana leaf inside a red star. Oh, wow. News cameras clicked and news film rolled. Disneyland executives had a simple solution. They shut down the rafts going back and forth to Tom Sawyer Island and told guests the island was closed for the day. Other youth snake danced around the hub and shouted obscenities to all the guests. Finally, the inevitable confrontation took place as the hidden riot teams emerged in a show of force and evicted the youth. This was for their own best interest to protect them from the rising anger of over 50,000 guests whose day at Disneyland was being ruined. Meanwhile, back on Tom Sawyer Island, the Yippies sang and chanted, but nobody in the park paid much attention to them. Finally, at around five in the evening, they pleaded to be let off the island. A raft was sent over to transport them back to shore. A group of them marched down Main Street, USA, and stood in front of City Hall, chanting obscene epithets, pulled down the American flag in Town Square, and raised their own flag. A guest on the steps of the railroad station started singing God Bless America, and in a few moments, several hundred guests joined in the singing. Seeing all this from City Hall, Dick Nunes knew the guests had to be kept separated from the yippies. Nunes formed a line of Disney cast members standing shoulder to shoulder and told the Yippies, you're going to get out of the park, and then started walking arm in arm slowly around Town Square towards the entrance. But the Yippies still would not leave. Nunes and the cast members went back round Town Square again, passed in front of the Opera House and stopped at the Hills Brothers Coffee House. Today, it's the Disney Showcase Room, where cast members personalize mouse ear hats. This is it. You're not going any further, ordered Nunes. The Yippies continued to grow restless and tried to push forward, but the cast members held their line. Finally, Nunes got on the radio and said, Send in the troops! The backstage gates opened and in came 400 policemen in riot gear and shields. You could hear the marching of their boots. The Yippies were corralled by the cast members with only one way out. Jack Lindquist was in the front row of the line and recalled that confrontation. Some nasty little kid, not more than 14 years old, said to me, You can't keep us out of here. This is America. We've got a right to be here. And when the gates opened, I said, you're not going any further. We've got plenty of law enforcement here. I'm not scared of any fuzz, he said. Bring on the fuzz. You wanted fuzz? Here is the fuzz, I barked at him. 
These policemen, all six foot four and taller, it seemed, marched down the street with cadence and determination. The kid's eyes grew. I wrapped my hand around his long hair, held it, and said, You wanted fuzz? Here it is. I'm going to give you fuzz. Can you imagine this happening today? No. I slammed the kid against an officer's chest and said, What is that? Is that the fuzz? The kid said, No, sir. That's a law enforcement officer, sir. I let the police handle him from there. Lindquist noticed a young man with long black hair hanging below his shoulder that appeared as if it hadn't been washed in months. Yelling, don't stop, push him through, push through. He broke loose and ran around Town Square and down Main Street. Nunes, who had been an All-American football player from USC, chased after him. The chase went through the Emporium, the candle shop, crossed the street into an artificial flower stand before Nunes tackled him. By this time, Linquist got to them. Nunes had a handful of hair in his hand, and Linquist thought, My God, Dick scalped him! But the, mm. but the yippie turned out to be an English professor from Cal State Fullerton who had been wearing a wig. Another row of police were standing shoulder to shoulder in the hub and down both sides of Main Street, USA. It was decided to close Disneyland five hours early, but there were 59,000 guests in the park who needed to be safely exited from the park. By this, by this time, the Yippies were leaving the park of their own accord. The Yippies knew they were facing many unhappy guests who had their day at Disneyland ruined. Guests were offered either free admission the next day or a cash refund. Many guests returned the next day. Many reporters and cameramen lingered around the park on August 7th, so they interviewed guests. Many of the guests said, if those kids show up again, they are going to be sorry. I'm not going to let them carry on like that in front of my wife and kids. The event made headline news around the country, and Disneyland received 1,400 editorials from newspapers within a week supporting their action. And do any of you remember this day? (coughs) I remember hearing about it, but I don't remember. I just remember hearing about it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the details. Yeah, I don't remember the details. I remember my parents talking about it, and it was on yeah. the front page of uh, the San Francisco Examiner. But I was still pretty young when all this happened. So, anyway, so looking back on that day, Jack Lindquist said, On Yippie Day, everybody who worked at Disneyland was family. I've never seen the park that pure. On that day, there was no division between labor or management. We had management people working as janitors in all of the bathrooms, acting as lookout for yippies. We had a presence throughout the park, and I've never seen a more united group of people at Disneyland than we were on August 6th, 1970. It was something to see because nobody said, oh, he's a director, he's a supervisor, he's a ride operator. That didn't matter. We were all Disneylanders and nothing else that day. We were a family, and somebody had attacked our family. Walt Disney famously said, Disneyland would never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. Something that I can keep developing and adding to. In the 1970s, Disneyland saw lots of growth and change. 
On Main Street, USA, changes including the closing of the Upjohn Pharmacy in September 1970. The new Century Clock Shop opened its doors in the same location in 1972. The Hurricane Lamp Shop turned off its lights in 1972. On January 9, 1976, the Disneyana Shop opened in the Hurricane Lamp Shop's former location inside the Crystal Arcade next to the Watch Shop. This shop was a joint project between Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Chuck Owsley, the Main Street production director, said, The purpose of the shop was really to expose our guests to something that really ties in to the history of Disney and the characters. We're really lucky that we don't have to worry about making a profit. (laughs) Those were the days. I know, right? (laughs) And that was the same thing for the one-of-a-kind shop in New Orleans Square. If you remember when we talked about that, that was the shop that Lillian Disney championed and actually found most of the merchandise for. It was it was an antique shop that was there only to create atmosphere. Many of the items for sale in this Disneyana shop were provided by a buyer in Florida and Disney archivist Dave Smith. Items for sale included bisque figures from the 1930s to the middle 1950s, animation cells, and dolls, Items ranged in price from $1 for a cutout from a 1938 Post Toasty cereal box to a $3,000 set of Seven Dwarfs dolls. When a guest purchased an item, they were given a specially designed card explaining when the item was originally sold or made. In 1971, the Book and Candle Shop, which had been on Main Street since 1955, closed. The whole block was remodeled. The space would be converted into four small shops. The Carefree Corner, which housed registry books for all 50 states, Canada, and other countries that guests could sign, and was the official information and travel center, lost its sponsor, the Insurance Company of North America, INA. In Town Square, the Hills Brothers Coffee House and Coffee Gardens, which had opened in 1958 and replaced the Maxwell Coffee House, closed in 1976 and reopened that same year as the Town Square Cafe. In 1976, it became the American Egg House until its closing in 1983, when it once again became the Town Square Cafe, and it closed on August 23, 1992. Another restaurant change happened in New Orleans Square in 1972 when the Creole Cafe was replaced by Cafe Orleans. In 1971, the horse-drawn Surrey made its last trip down Main Street, USA. It had been taking guests for a ride up and down Main Street since the park had opened in 1955. Its swan song was played at the Wurlitzer Shop in September 1968 when it closed its doors to be replaced by an exhibit focusing on Walt's life and contributions, Walt Disney, A Legacy for the Future, which opened on January 15, 1970. The exhibit featured 208 awards awards given to Walt Disney during his lifetime, his Marceline, Missouri first-grade school desk with his initials carved into it, and a six-minute film on the California Institute of the Arts, or CalArts, which was scheduled to open in the fall. This exhibit remained open until 1973. 
Since June of 1969, a staff of over 200 at Walt Disney Productions had been going through thousands of feet of taped interviews with Walt Disney with the goal of producing a film in which Walt would narrate his own life story. Four years later, in March 1973, a small fraction of the material reviewed was included in a 23-minute film, The Walt Disney Story. This film became the centerpiece of a new attraction on the main streets of both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. The film itself was a sentimental account of the highlights of Walt's career, with few memoirs of episodes or persons in his personal life. It began with a prologue spoken by Pete Renaday, an actor and voice actor who appeared in several other Disney films films, and theme park productions and attractions. This introduction used a story about the boy who wanted to march in the circus parade and a sort of scary close-up of Vessie Walker's, the original Disneyland band leader's face, to illustrate one of Walt's simple philosophies about life and the importance of taking chances. Then Walt's voice took over and the story of his life began with his mother and father's Chicago contracting business at the time of his birth on December 5, 1901. Various episodes along the way to Walt's commercial success were touched upon. Among these were his family's move to Marceline, Missouri, his first paying job as an artist drawing Doc Sherwood's horse his stint as a World War I ambulance driver in Paris, and his initial forays into animation with the Alice comedies in Kansas City. His rough-and-tumble beginnings led him to California and a 1923 establishment with his brother Roy of the first animation studio in Hollywood. From there, the film focused solidly on the studio's triumphs and failures over the course of the next 30 years. Guests learned about the creation of Mickey Mouse, the evolution of the Silly Symphonies, the runaway success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the thought process behind the True Life Adventures, and the company-wide confidence in the promise of Mary Poppins. To the film's credit, there were also some discussions of films that fell short of expectations. For example, Walt explained that financial restrictions prevented the intended viewing of Fantasia in its widescreen format which he felt compromised the final product upon, upon its release. Additionally, he rationalized that Alice in Wonderland's box office nosedive was directly attributable to its lack of heart. Contrasted with the sympathetic Cinderella, he observed millions of people didn't care about Alice. The last section of the film dealt with Disneyland and the plans for Walt Disney World. Walt revealed that his Disneyland park would offer his take on what he felt were the most vital parts of American history and also delve into the world of tomorrow and the realms of fantasy. It was to be an environment where parents and children could have fun together and one where he could make constant improvements. He also states that there would be a distinction between Disneyland and whatever Disney does in Florida. In a segment pulled from his 1966 Epcot film, he affirmed that the heart of Walt Disney World would be his city of tomorrow. The effect of hearing Walt say this just moments before the screen panned out on Herb Ryman's famous Epcot painting was powerful. 
And as the film grew older and Epcot changed directions, disheartening. But at the time of the attraction's debut, it was testimony to the company's intention of following through with Epcot the city. In conclusion, Walt described his little B role in the company during his last years and explained what he felt was most gratifying after over 40 years in the business. For him, the reward was in building his organization and gaining the acceptance and appreciation of the public for the work he had done. Although the film was described in Disneyland Attraction Guides as the story of Walt and Roy, Roy's part in the film was, much as in life, largely behind the scenes. Walt's wife was absent from the story, as were his daughters, aside for a brief mention regarding their role in the concept of Disneyland. The circumstances surrounding Walt's death were naturally not among the topics he discussed in interviews and were therefore left out of the film as well. At Walt Disney World, this attraction opened in a building constructed expressly for the film and exhibit. It opened in April 1973 and was dedicated on May 6th in a ceremony attended by Mrs. Lillian Disney and Mrs. Roy O. Disney. The opening went smoothly, and the exhibit was well-received by guests. At Disneyland, it was a different story, which sparked more controversy than accolades. Noticing waning attendance at the Lincoln Theater and the Opera House, Disneyland executives decided to retire the great moments with Mr. Lincoln's show and use the large theater for the new Walt Disney Story film. A public outcry immediately followed, not over the arrival of Walt Disney, but over the departure of Abraham Lincoln. Letters poured into Disneyland deploring the removal of, quote, Walt Disney's greatest achievement and gift to America. Others suggested that the Disney organization had, quote, succumbed to the same lack of patriotism that had already infected much of our nation and the removal of Mr. Lincoln was an insult to the memory of Walt Disney, ignoring the fact that the great emancipator had been replaced by a film honoring the life of Walt Disney. Finally, the beleaguered Disney executives removed the Walt Disney story film and had it edited down and combined with other footage to create a new version, which became a part of the pre-show for President Lincoln's return engagement. Other items on display in the pre-show exhibit in the Opera House lobby were recreations of Walt's work and TV offices, displays of various awards and accolades, and an audio-animatronic owl who spoke on Walt Disney's groundbreaking nature films, the True Life Adventure series. This new attraction, renamed the Walt Disney Story, featuring great moments with Mr. Lincoln, probably one of the longest titles for any attraction, opened in 1975. Arguably the most popular and beloved of all Disneyland parades, the Main Street Electrical Parade first dazzled Disneyland guests with its spectacular festival pageant of nighttime magic and imagination in thousands of sparkling lights and electro-synthomagnetic musical sounds in its debut on June 7, 1972. No one had ever seen anything like it, 
an entertainment spectacle combining music and technology in a way that left guests staring in awe. The predecessor to the 1972 Disneyland Main Street Electrical Parade is the Electrical Water Pageant, a show made up of 14 25-foot-tall screens with electrical lights placed on them, depicting everything from King Triton to the Stars and Stripes. The screens are placed on a string of seven barges that travel around the Seven Seas Lagoon in front of the Magic Kingdom at the Walt Disney World Resort. Card Walker had been looking for something to keep guests at the park past sundown, and when he saw the success of the electrical water pageant, he decided Disneyland needed a similar nighttime event. Additionally, Disneyland cast members and guests were feeling neglected because very little attention they felt was being paid to Disneyland since the opening of Walt Disney World. Card Walker wanted to rectify this. The Main Street Electrical Parade was created by Director of Entertainment Bob Johnny, Ann or Janney, and Protector, Project Director Ron Mitzger. Card Walker met with Bob and Ron and explained his concerns about Disneyland and the need for a spectacular nighttime event. Card's only directive to Bob and Ron was that it should keep guests in the park beyond the early evening hours. This is hard to imagine these days. That they had, I know, to, right? they had to work to keep guests in the park. Dick Nunes, executive vice president of Walt Disney World and Disneyland, was against working on and implementing the nighttime project. He said with the opening of ba- the Bear Band, the Country Bear Jamboree, which opened on March 4th, 1972, he didn't see a need for another big attraction like a parade. Carr disagreed with Dick and told Bob and Ron to continue working on their idea. Ron went to the local library to do research on various show ideas he was considering. He came across a story describing what some big cities did during the introduction of electricity. At the turn of the century, big cities that were amongst the first to get electricity will hold parades down their main streets with strings of lighted bulbs. This struck Ron as an interesting idea. He went back to Bob and said, What if we do a parade with lights? The overwhelming popularity of the electric water pageant at Walt Disney World further inspired them to create a West Coast equivalent, but instead of being on water, Ron and Bob put wheels to the idea and created the Main Street Electrical Parade for Disneyland. It was almost a literal translation of the electric water pageant, because the first Main Street Electrical Parade for Disneyland was mostly a series of flat screens lit images being pulled down Main Street by cast members. The few dimensional floats were the Casey Jr. train, Mickey's large drum, and the whirlybugs, because all these floats existed from past parades and were simply fitted with lights. The blue fairy who would lead the parade was the only new dimensional float. The only problems to come up was how to power these floats. Powering the electric water pageant was easy because the generators were on the lake. However, it wasn't as easy for a parade on wheels. The park maintenance department offered the help of one of their electric engineers, Jerry Hefferly, to come up with a workable power source. They looked at a number of power sources, including various types of generators and even electrifying the tracks in the street. 
but still was not able to come up with an adequate way to power the parade. The power source had to accomplish three different tasks at the same time, light the bulbs to create the images, power the unit itself, and power the sound system. They reported back to Card about their problems, and he said their team had about a week to figure out whether it was possible or not. Three days before their deadline, Jerry was working virtually nonstop to figure out the problem. He was doing a number of calculations on various types of batteries when he told Ron and Bob that he believed he might have the answer. The Walt Disney Studio had recently purchased a brand new type of battery called nickel-cadmium, batteries, commonly known today as NICAD batteries, for lighting and other various film productions. Cherry believed, based on his calculations, they were more efficient than existing car batteries and would solve the power issue. He determined if they ran the parade in one direction, they could then recharge the batteries and do a second show in the opposite direction. After the week was over, the team went into another meeting with Card, Walker, and Dick Nunes and told them they had found a solution to their power problem. Card was ecstatic, but Dick was still against the entire idea. At Card's direction, plans for the parade continued to move forward. Another issue was where to get the right light bulbs to create the exact desired effect. The team determined the specifications of the bulb would be I- that would be ideal for each of the floats. After an extensive search, they finally found a company, the Silvestri Lights Company of Chicago. At the time, this Italian company was the only company manufacturing the tiny Christmas lights. One of the problems was that the lights only came in clear. All color required hand-dipping the lights into a color medium. Planning for the parade took place January and February of 1972. Construction of the floats had to start quickly if they wanted to get the parade up by the mid-June deadline. Relying on their working knowledge of their lights, they contracted Silvestri in the beginning of March to handle the construction of the floats. With regular updates, the team found that the construction company was falling far behind and not accomplishing what they needed. Ron headed to Chicago to evaluate the situation. It was a disaster. Very little had been accomplished. Bob and Ron discussed their options by phone, and it was decided that they would bring the floats back to California for completion. Whilst Ron organized moving vans and had all the floats packed up and driven back west, Bob began preparations for their arrival and the work that needed to be accomplished. Large circus tents were erected backstage at Disneyland, and a large crew of electricians, carpenters, and others were hired to begin work on the parade unit pieces after they arrived. Flying back from Chicago, Ron remembers contemplating that he was flying over a fleet of 14 moving vans of stuff, none of which was anywhere close to being finished, with only a few weeks left before the announced opening of this spectacular new parade. Once back in California, crews worked round the clock on the floats. Most of the scheduled rehearsals with the performing cast were canceled to allow more hours of work on the units. One of the two rehearsals that did take place, the first was a complete disaster. Some of the units fell apart, 
including Cinderella's canopy of lights. One unit crashed into a building on Main Street. And two horses, there were several horses with riders in the first version of the parade, fell under the weight of the lighted banners they were carrying. The electricians and other crew members each became totally dedicated to the task at hand. They were all determined to get this parade done and opened on time. They were still working on the floats right up to the moment it premiered on June 17, 1972. As the floats were readying to move from backstage to Main Street, the lights on the units were lit for the first time. Dozens of electricians were still working on the lights and hopping off just before each unit went through the gates into public view. Ron said, The sight of that happening was like people jumping ship just prior to its sinking. Fortunately, the parade was an instant hit. Can you imagine <laughs> that day? Now, were any of you there for these this first iteration of the parade? I was not. Mm-hmm. Not that I, I remember now. Yeah, I do remember this. And yeah, it was mostly flats um, that, that cast members who were dressed up pushed or pulled. So, And it was still amazing. Um, the engineer who helped create the parade also created the first show control, show control program in existence. This required the 2000 foot, 610 meter long parade route to contain multiple radioactive trigger zones. Using radioactivated triggers as each float entered a zone, guests would hear float specific music through the Disneyland audio system. Each zone was between 70 to 100 feet long, and the zoned system meant that every guest watching the parade would experience the same show, no matter where they stood along the parade route. You have to admit that that's amazing technology. It is. You know, who who would have thought of, I mean, to even come up with that concept, that when the parade got to you, you'd have the same experience as a person who saw the parade, and- you know, hundreds of yards you know, uh, behind you or ahead of you. Absolutely. And that was revolutionary for the time. Now yeah. it's normal, no matter where you go. But that it was amazing back then. And they upped mm-hmm. it as they went along. You know, it became stereophonic. Um, as they went along and redid floats, they had their own speakers as well as the um, all-park track. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, and think of Paint the Night today and that sound. You know, compared to right. the first electrical parade. So anyway, now, so now the next problem was to find the right music for the parade. And that's what we love the most about this. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, Bob Janney wanted calliope music and was set to use it for the Main Street electrical parade. However, Ron's team wanted something else. And a member of that team, Jack Wagner, who had been responsible for finding all the background music for Walt Disney World, was given the challenge of finding alternate music examples. Bob eventually got to use his calliope music for America on Parade, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Jack Wagner, in addition to him being responsible for finding the music, had another distinction. He was nicknamed the Voice of Disneyland. 
Jack's voice was not only heard over Disneyland's public address system for parades and special events, he also did a lot of voice work for the attractions themselves, including instructions, emergency precautions, and safety spiels. Jack also did some voice work for the Walt Disney World Resort, what is probably his most famous and popular work to some Disney World fans. His voice can still be heard on Walt Disney World monorail systems. Please stand clear of the doors. Can you do the rest hmm. for us, Mary Jo? <laughs> Permanecer sentados, por favor. No, no, that's not it. Oh, manténganse en la alejado yeah, de la puerta. I'm that's sorry. That's it. That's it. <laughs> por favor, and then the rest of it. Por favor. <laughs> Jack also had one more responsibility with the Main Street Electrical Parade. He provided the very famous announcement for both the original Disneyland Main Street Electrical Parade and Walt Disney World Main Street Electrical Parade. In a vocoded voice, you hear, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland proudly presents our spectacular festival pageant of nighttime magic and imagination in thousands of sparkling lights and electrosynthomagnetic musical sounds, the Main Street Electrical Parade. And you heard all of that in the original sound, didn't you? That vocoded sound. Oh, yeah. Sound. I, I, I d- Not only that, Michael, I've got tears in my mm-hmm. eyes. Yeah. And, and did you hear the fanfare also in your head? <laughs> oh yeah, I all of you know the right now they say all the feels right mm-hmm. all the feels and yeah I I heard all that sound superimposed over your voice very <laughs> yes cool. yeah even me when I was writing it and reading it um after the parade concludes you hear one final announcement before the closing fanfare Disneyland's Main Street Electrical Parade. Don Dorsey took over after Wagner passed away in 1995. Jack found a number of musical samples he believed would work for the parade. He met in Bob Jenny's office, and Jack played each music sample. Ron, music director Jim Christensen, and others agreed that there was one piece that was better than the rest. Baroque Hoedown. The music had been created electronically, something totally new at this time in the music world. The electronic sound and its quirky, catchy melody were infectious. The tempo was right for choreography, and a one-minute and three-second portion could be looped to play continuously, exactly what parade music needed to do. The original version was created in 1967 by early synthesizer pioneer Jean-Jacques Perry from France and Gershon Kingsley from Germany. The team spoke to the composer's agents, who agreed to allow them use the music for the parade. Originally, the parade soundtrack had the same themes as the current recording, but was a different arrangement by Jim Christensen and Paul Beaver. In 1977, it was updated and arranged by electronic music artist Don Dorsey and Jack Wagner at Jack Wagner's studio, which was used until January 2009 in Disney's Electrical Parade. Perry and Kingsley had licensed the song for commercial use, but didn't realize that Disney had based an entire parade around it until Parade visited the park in 1980 and heard it played. Can you imagine? You hear your music totally by surprise. (laughs) Now, I did hear one story years ago that actually a a friend of his who knew the music had been used purposefully took him to the park. 
um, so that he oh. would hear it, but, but let him be surprised. That is cool. Mm-hmm. A quick search of Los Angeles-based musicians turned up synthesizer programmer Paul Beaver. Paul had a small studio and was considered the only guy for synth work in Hollywood. On May 17, 1972, Jack and Jim met with Paul for the first time. As they experimented and explored with Paul programming the electronic sounds and Jim playing the keyboard, two demo tracks were completed. One was a short patriotic medley, and the other was the original Baroque hoedown recording with a synth bass line added. Through discussions with Bob, it was decided to build the entire parade on top of Baroque hoedown, a technique similar to It's a Small World, where one melody is overlaid with multiple synchronized arrangements. In this plan, instead of moving the audience through the arrangements, the arrangements would move past the audience. Armed with sketches of the parade floats, Jim began the the puzzle-like process of fitting Disney melodies into the harmonic structure and format of Baroque Hoedown. Jack, Jim, and Paul created six different musical scenes, each one using Baroque Hoedown as the foundation. Three of those original tracks, Baroque, Alice, and the Angry Dragon were retired with the original Electrical Parade after its 1974 season, but Cinderella, Dumbo, and the Patriotic Finale continued to be used in all versions of the parade. America on Parade, including Rob Janney's Calliope music, was a replacement for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Paul Beaver, who was working on the music for this parade as well, died suddenly. Jack Wagner contacted the Moog Company, the manufacturer of the synthesizer that Paul had used, to see if they knew any local programmers. They suggested Don Dorsey, a student at Cal State Fullerton. He helped create the Great American Band organ sound for the Patriotic Parade. Following his work on America on Parade, Jack hired Don as his full-time audio production assistant. When the Main Street Electrical Parade returned to Disneyland in 1977, Don proposed to do something very different. The original parade began with a manually triggered tape of an oscillator sweep, followed by the fade-in of the continuous parade music as the lights were turned off. Don wanted to create an exciting musical opening that would incorporate a fanfare that segued directly into the parade tempo. He also wanted to synchronize the light cue to the music for dramatic effect. Because a parade would need this sonic beginning as it arrived to each different area of the park, Don invented a way to perform automatic synchronized introductions on demand. This process, called the opening window, has been used to start Disney parades ever since. Don composed the electric fanfare, reworked the underliner Blue Fairy track, with a perkier bass line and new medley enhancements, rearranged the Alice in Wonderland unit and added creature sounds and added new tracks for Pete's Dragon, the Briny Deep Underwater, and Disney Neon Finale. Bob Janney called the new music Electro-Synthomagnetic and wrote the announcement for the opening sequence. The summer of 1977 also saw the first complete revision of the parade, taking it from flat screens to three-dimensional units, and the parade of uh, the debut of the Electrical Parade at Walt Disney World. And the fo- in the following January, 
Disney took several electrical parade floats to the Orange Bowl for a spectacular halftime show produced by Ron Misker. For the halftime show, introductions and endings for the Alice in Wonderland and Pete's Dragon units needed to be created, along with a grand finale for the Blue Fairy track. Don composed the fanfare of lights for the finale and used the opening window concept in reverse to achieve the musical endings. Bob Janney liked the result so much that the closing fanfare was added to the parades in the summer of 1978. Over the ensuing years, the park saw many musical units come and go, most arranged and performed by Don. In 1979, the Briny Deep unit was transformed into a Pinocchio underwater scene. Disneyland's 25th anniversary brought a new unit for the 1980 season. The Fox and the Hound unit appeared in the summer of 1981. The parade opened in June of 1972 and was an instant hit. Park guests requested copies of the music, so in 1973, when Jack, Jim, and Paul reunited to record a small world unit, a recording of the soundtrack was produced. The seven-inch souvenir disc featured a colorful graphic of the parade pressed directly into the vinyl and was amongst Mm. the first of its kind. I have like three of those from that Do you really? Mm Mm-hmm. Did did you get them when you went to Disneyland or I, I did. were they gifts? No, I or? got those when I was there. Wow. I got them. They were there for several years. And so I got them. When I was a, a teacher, I was te- when I taught kindergarten, I played side 1 as the as the cleanup warm warrant morning that if we were doing art or some messy project, I would start it and they knew they had 5 minutes to clean up all their workstations. <laughs> so I thought I raised a generation of children that when they hear that parade, they look around and start cleaning things up. Yeah. They, <laughs> they have this sudden urge to start cleaning. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> In addition, the parade featured more than 158 foot tall doll like characters representing the people of the United States. For the most part, the enormous animated figures on the, Oh, I'm sorry. I accidentally, I accidentally skipped ahead. So, going back, the Main Street Electrical Parade would become the longest-running parade in Disney theme park history. It's also one of the largest Disney parades, consisting of 23 floats, 80 performers, with more than 500 miles of lights. The audio and the float movement, it takes more than 27 tons of batteries to present the parade every night. That energy could power 32 homes. The Main Street Electrical Parade has dazzled generations of families, parents who first enjoyed the Main Street Electrical Parade as children in 1972, brought their own children to Disneyland to be awed by the magic of thousands of sparkling lights and electrosynthomagnetic musical sounds. The Main Street Electrical Parade glowed away in 1975 to make way for America on Parade to celebrate the nation's bicentennial in 1976. Before we move on, did anybody have any thoughts they wanted to share about the Main Street Electrical Parade? I love it, but I, when I was a kid, I didn't go to Disneyland a lot with my family, even though I was in San Diego, and I discovered it when it came back to mm-hmm. California Adventure, and I just loved the parade, even though by then it was kind of dated. But I still loved it, and I can't imagine how exciting it would have been 
when the technology was new. But to show you how it still was amazing years later, and when it came back, everybody was excited. Then when they took it away, people were more upset. But that was kind of a memory, not to get too for clump or anything, that Andrew and I used to do when he was little. We would go just, like, I would just take him, probably from the ages of, like, two to five, and go and sit and watch and get, like, ice cream. And that was the thing that me and him used to, he and I used to do. So, I just loved the parade. Of course, I saw it in the second version, not the yeah. original. I saw, we saw it in the in the 70s, and our house was the go-to house when relatives from Texas would come to California. And so, we would have probably... Each summer, three different families come visit visit us. So we were the Disneyland experts in the family, of course. And my mom, ha- we had an LP that had the Main Street Electrical Parade on it. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, my mom would put it on the stereo and she would blast it as loud as she could. <laughs> and that's how we woke up, knowing that was the day we went to Disneyland. And everybody, you know, like people... Kids today might groan, you know, oh, but no, everybody jumped up because it was Disneyland Day and everybody was so excited and everybody in our family loved the parade. So whenever I hear it, I'm remembering my cousins coming from Texas and us sitting on the curb and being excited. And, and we had, um, you know, Prince John, mm-hmm. the, the lion in there. Well, at one time he was a character in the park. And he was hiding in the castle or like standing still like a statue. And so my dad walked past and he kicked my dad in the butt <laughs> and then, and then stood still again. Right. And my dad was like, what, what? And of course everybody laughed. It was just, you know, something really. So Prince John, then our whole family loved Prince John because he had that interaction with my dad. So then that's something else for the parade that we just always, you know, when he would come, we'd all point and laugh and, oh, Prince John and, everything like that. And so the parade just, it's so much more than just music and floats to us. It's just bonded family memories, I think. And then when my own kids grew up, not grew up where, you know, were old enough for me to take to the park. I took them, you know, until they took the, the parade to Walt Disney world. And so my kids earliest memories of Disneyland are sitting on the curb and watching the parade. And I'll never forget in 99, we made our one big family trip to Walt Disney World. And one of the things my son wanted to do was he wanted to go with me to the Magic Kingdom and watch the electrical light parade or electrical parade um, to just because it meant so much to him. And I'll always remember that. Yeah, I'm the same way. I saw it when I was a boy, when I was a teenager. Um, I saw, I've seen it in four Disney parks. I saw, of course, in Disneyland, Cal- Disney California Adventure, saw it in the Magic Kingdom, and oh, I've yeah. seen it in Tokyo Disneyland. And it, it just holds up so well. And, and I remember being so excited when, you know, I took our children to that, when it glowed away that what we thought was the last time, we pulled our kids out of school so that we could see it. It came back mm-hmm. like right after the Christmas season for the encore performance. But, um, I mean, that's how important it was to all of us. And, and do you remember in California Adventure, Michael, watching it with the other Disney fans? Mm-hmm. How everybody felt so united? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, we, I've never seen another parade pull so many people together like that. No, I think, yeah, I know. I think people felt it was our parade. 
you know, in a, a lot of ways, because because it's it spanned generations. I, and I remember Carol and I, uh, we were when we were at Disneyland, and I think we were still dating. And Star Tours was under construction. Space Mountain was new, and I insisted every night both showings of seeing the electrical parade. And she's <laughs> and, and the line for Space Mountain was you know down the main street uh, all the time. And she wanted to go on Space Mountain, and she finally said. One of these nights when the parade is running, can we please go on Space Mountain? I oh. said, I said, okay, sure. So we, so before the, an hour before the parade was starting, we were riding on, on the people mover. And, you know, we went through the construction area, star tours and all that. And then, um, there were teenage boys on, uh, on a couple cars behind us on our people mover train and they jumped out. In order to go into the Star Tours construction, well, there are sensors on on the sides of that track. So when the pressure was felt, the train stopped and the whole ride stopped. We were right above the entrance to Tomorrowland where the Astro Orbiter is now. And um, we were stuck. And the problem is they could walk people off and they could... But trains all had to be boosted. Ours couldn't be until everybody was off and they could oh. do the electrical surge to us. So they, um, they got, they got like these guys in black suits on either side of us to sort of keep everybody in the train. They told us what had been going on. And uh, Carol just kept talking about, we want to go on say something. We want to go on say something. Well, we were there so long. The whole Main Street parade, it was an hour went by. We were still there. The whole Main Street parade ran. That was the best view of Main Street parade <laughs> we ever had. To see it from a distance like that above it and see all uh-huh. the patterns and all the dancers, you know, the patterns of the lights on the, it was amazing. Oh. Well, then the line, then, um, then lined up Space Mountain right when the parade ended. And Carol said, well, there are the lines. We're not going to get on Space Mountain now. And then they finally were able to inch our train up enough so that we could get off in the center where there's, you know, room to walk. And they walked us down. And then somebody came up and said, are you the two who want to go on Space Mountain? And we said, yes. He said, follow me. And we went through all these back ways backstage wow. and all that stuff and suddenly a door opened and we were at the head of the line of space mountain and i wow. was i was wearing one of my musketeer buttons that i still have and the person said um put these people on next they're vips and you heard everybody <laughs> in the line say who is he who is he <laughs> and then we went right on got in the front went right on so that's what that's my that's my um People mover, Main Street Electrical Parade, Space Mountain story. It's a great story. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. Anyway. Well, America on Parade consisted of 50 units and lasted over 30 minutes. Some of the units symbolized specific events in American history. For the most part, however, the planners concentrated on themes, which paraded in sequence would capture the panorama panorama of American achievements, population growth, and lifestyles. The parade was made up of 50 units depicting milestones and important institutions in the history of the United States, from Columbus's discovery of the New World through the establishment of the government in Washington, D.C. to space exploration. Like all Disney projects, America on Parade began with research. 
For nearly a year, researchers assembled information about the history of the United States. Each moving stage and set represented a significant milestone in United States history that could be dramatized. America on Parade was, before all else, a show. A big show. The biggest show Disney had ever produced up to that time. Some of the units symbolized specific events. Columbus's voyage and the making of the first United States flag, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in Promontory, Utah, a pilgrim barn raising represented colonial times, a flatboat and Conestoga wagon represented the young nation's mastery of the frontier, the automobile and airplane epitomized the revolution in transportation in the 20th century, the pace and momentum of modern times are captured in units demonstrating the role of movies and television, fast foods, and sports in everyday life. America on Parade was designed to be entertainment based on the nation's social history. It would tell the story in song and dance of the American people, what they have done, how they have lived, how they have changed. The 50 parade units took shape on the drawing boards of Walt Disney Productions. Rough sketches became models, blueprints were made, motors were designed, the dimensions had to be adjusted to transconform with the dimensions of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, since parades were being constructed for both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. When the blueprints and models were completed and checked for accuracy and practicality, the leading manufacturers of theatrical sets in cities throughout the United States were commissioned to build the units. Every element of America on Parade was manufactured in pairs, one unit for each park, that would have to withstand the wear of daily and sometimes twice daily parades. Most of the parade units were more than 20 feet high, with the highest being nearly 30 feet, and ranged from 15 to 40 feet in length. In addition, the parade featured more than 158-foot-tall doll-like characters representing the people of the United States. For the most part, the enormous animated figures on great mobile stages were alike. The differences were shown through costuming. Dressing the dolls proved to be one of the most complex problems that the pageant's planners faced. First, the costumes had to be accurate. Researchers and costumers had to work together to find appropriate fabrics and to sew them as they would have been sewn 50, 100, 200 years ago. To add to the complexity of the costumes, the material had to be bright enough to be seen clearly in the parade tough enough to withstand the wear of the 600 outdoor performances, and practical enough to be cleaned quickly, easily, and frequently. And if that didn't complicate things enough, there was the weight problem to worry about. For inside each of the eight-foot dolls, there would be a teenage boy or girl who would have to perform with considerable energy under the very hot sun of California or Florida. Therefore, the fabric had to be lightweight. The costumers managed to find a remarkable variety of fabrics meeting all these requirements. Next, the dolls were given appropriate wigs, hats, and props, all of which had to meet the same requirements met by the costumes. The parade units were designed to look like huge toys, and the characters to be outsized dolls. The size of the show made the presentation easily visible. 
Visibility, however, was only one reason for the gigantic scale. For, like every aspect of the production, the bigness of the parade units and characters contributed to the celebratory atmosphere, an atmosphere calculated to make everyone, old as well as young, see the parade through the eyes of a child. American musical history provided researchers with more than enough songs for the parade, but the means to play those songs represented a problem. The planners wanted a band organ sound, and two years before the start of the pageant, they began a search for a real mechanical music box to play the selected songs. Eventually, they found a completely restored 1890 band organ in Siskiton, Missouri, known as Sadie May. The instrument had some 200 pipes and worked on the same principle as a piano player, a uh, player piano, except the punched hole piano books were used instead of piano rolls. That was fine except that researchers found out that they that only one man in the world was capable of making piano books by hand, and he was in Belgium. Determined to settle for nothing less than Sadie May, Disney sent the musical arrangements to Belgium and had the books made. Then Sadie May was taken apart and shipped to Nashville, where it was reconstructed in a recording studio and given the new books to play. The tapes were made in Nashville and sent to Los Angeles, where still another recording studio, Sadie May's music was embellished with the sounds of a Moog synthesizer. To make the most of the recorded music, the Disney engineers devised a system whereby selected units broadcast from their own loudspeakers, while others broadcast their signals to radio receivers along the parade route. Then the signals were rebroadcasted through loudspeakers in fixed locations. The radio transmitted signals and the signals broadcasted from the units themselves were perfectly synchronized and made music that was almost symphonic in its constancy and pacing. At the conclusion of the parade, the recorded strains of Sadie May were mixed with melodies played by a live band. Each state in the Union was honored during a specific week of the 15-month celebration. The Disney organization had invited marching bands, most of which were from high schools, to participate in America on Parade. These band members were the only humans in the parade whose faces weren't, weren't hidden within character costumes. From beginning to end, the parade measured three quarters of a mile and took about half an hour to pass. Disney's America on Parade was presented once a day during the winter months and twice a day during the summer weekends and on holidays. The second performance in the twice-a-day program was held at night and was followed by an astonishing fantasy-in-the-sky fireworks display of red, white, and blue fireworks from vendors in the United States Canada, Europe, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, and the People's Republic of China. A birthday party is what Walt Disney Productions wanted America on Parade to be, and a birthday party is what it was. From the moment when the flag, fife, and drum came into view, carried by Mickey, Goofy, and Donald, dressed as revolutionary soldiers, until the last confetti-throwing parade unit, a circus train proclaiming America to be the greatest show on Earth, the parade was unabashedly patriotic, joyful, 
and proud. Now, did any of you see this parade? I'm sure I did, because we've gone so many, but I don't remember it. I didn't I didn't see it, except that there are um, videos on YouTube of it, and I've seen those in, you know, preparing for this. But anyway, although America on Parade also ran at night during peak seasons, it was no Main Street Electrical Parade. On September 6, 1976, the parade was retired. The character dolls, though, would be seen again <coughs> with the opening of Epcot Center. <laughs> the Main Street Electrical Parade made its sparkling return to Disneyland in 1997. The 1970s also saw the reimagining of two popular attractions, the Jungle Cruise and the Matterhorn Bobsleds, and both attractions had a host of new residents. This was the decade of thrills for Disneyland with the opening of the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and Space Mountain. A favorite attraction packed up and headed east to be replaced by a singing menagerie of patriotic critters. Several attractions lost their sponsorship, which resulted in a name change for two of Walt's most beloved attractions and a sleuth of singing bears left the ski slopes and moved into a brand new realm in Disneyland. We'll talk about all this and more in part two of 60 Years of Disneyland, Disneyland After Walt, 1970 to 1979. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including A History of the Main Street Electrical Parade by Chuck Mirachi for Walt Disney World News Today. Disney's America on Parade, A History of the USA in a Dazzling, Fun-Filled Pageant by David Jacobs. In Service to the Mouse, My Unexpected Journey to Becoming Disneyland's First President, a memoir by Jack Lindquist. The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. Disneyland's Inside Story by Randy Bright. I believe the dedication the Imagineers and cast members showed in continuing Walt's legacy in the park demonstrates their affection and loyalty for Walt and his ideals, vision, and storytelling. Next week, I'll be back with a new episode of Connecting with Walt. Until then, you can connect with me um, by sending me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 